0: Welcome back warriors. Tunse Sego Anibuju. Crane Ndaluzi Pam Palmer and I'm the host of this show The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life. A lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies and spirits while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, languages, laws and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And while we often associate the hard work of defending our lands, sovereignties, and cultures to those living on reserves in Canada or reservations in the United States, the fact is more than half of Native Americans and half of First Nations live off reserve because that doesn't take into account our vast traditional territories. We could still very much be on our territories, even though we're not technically on reserve. Does that make any of them less Native culturally, politically, socially? Any less interested in their lands or how to govern their nations? Absolutely not. Yet, if you look at federal and provincial policy in Canada and federal and state policy in the United States, Native peoples living in urban areas often get less attention and less funding for even things like basic social support systems. It's been a real struggle to get attention for the many families who live off reserve, but today's guest has put a phenomenal amount of work and attention and energy, heart and compassion into identifying and addressing issues faced by urban Indigenous peoples. Ginger Gosnell Myers, who I have admired forever and have, you know, followed her work for many, many years, she is the first Indigenous Fellow with the SFU Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue, focused on decolonization and urban Indigenous policy and planning. She's also the first Indigenous Relations Manager with the City of Vancouver, where she's led the creation and implementation of the City of Reconciliation Framework. We're going to talk about all of these things when we bring her in here. But you know how I came to know her? I came to know her through her award-winning Urban Aboriginal People's Study with the Environics Institute that she helped lead. I mean, a phenomenal, groundbreaking report that everything has been based on ever since. So welcome to the Warrior Life podcast, Ginger.
1: Thank you, Pam. I am so excited to talk with you today. It's been a long
0: time since we've seen each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're, you know, kind of on opposite ends of, of Turtle Island right now. But I'm, I'm pumped to share with people your journey, your research, the current projects that you're working on, and really answer that question. Why urban? Why are we focusing on urban indigenous issues? And I think it's just such a phenomenally important question. But before we jump into all that good stuff, like to offer you an opportunity to introduce yourself the way you like to, or where you're from. Okay, thank you. Uh,
1: so I am from the Niska and Kwakwaka'wakw Nations here on the west coast of BC. Um, my clan with the Niska Nation is the Wolf Clan or Lakhibu. Uh, so I'm Lakhibu uh, with the Nisga. I'm originally from the uh, community of Gitlak Damiks. Uh, and I'm situated within the nation through Wilp Bach uh, Yep, through my Beep Samogit Bach uh, Yep in that respect. Um, on my Kwakwiwak side, uh, I'm from uh, the village of Cape Mudge with the Lewis family. Of course, these are both prominent uh, fishing communities uh, here on the West Coast or when fishing used to be a thing for, for us uh, First Nations people here. So uh, that, that is where I'm
0: from. And one thing I forgot to say in your introduction is that you have been doing this forever. So you have been actively engaged as a youth right on into adulthood. And I'm trying to focus more on people who have been involved as a youth are currently youth or are still working to make sure that youth are included. And nowhere is that, you know, as important as in the urban indigenous context. So listen, Ginger, ever since I first met you, like all those years ago, I think it was like literally in my first year at Ryerson University, I have been inspired by your work because I, too, have focused on urban Indigenous issues, off-reserve Indigenous issues in a multitude of different contexts. And I've always thought that your work is such a combination of community you know, there's the academic part, there's the research, there's the advocacy, there's the public education, there's the government level of education part. And I know our listeners would absolutely love to hear your life journey. You know, before we get into all the big projects you're working on, how did you go from little ginger to what you're doing today? Is this something you always knew you were going to be a part of? Is there something that happened? How, what's, what, what has been your path?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, I joke with some of my friends uh, who grew up on the water, who were fishermen's kids. That we grew up in this old, tiny lifestyle um, where you know our lives were really seasonal, um, and that brought a lot of important gifts that, like, I wish that our young people had access to today. So you know, I grew up spending my springs and summers on the ocean fishing for. Every salmon and halibut and herring, you know, uh, from Prince Rupert all the way down to Vancouver. And during the uh, during the fall and winter, uh, this is when we would hold our feasts. So I also grew up in the feast house, you know, going to family gatherings, going to traditional dance practices. You know, this was a time when we were still trying to... Uh, I think, lessen the impacts of residential schools. We're still relearning our dances, relearning our culture, uh, relearning our language. Um, And I have such a good memory. So I have all of these really incredible childhood memories of being in this really dynamic cultural landscape in Gitluckdamics. It was a great place to be a kid, Um, you know, and unfortunately my father passed away when I was quite young, I was 12. And I lost access to this life on a regular basis. You know, I'd still be able to go back home and visit family, but it wasn't on a day to day to day thing. Uh, so you know, I always hold dear to my heart the importance of being connected to your home community, regardless of where you are, because that's a reality for those of us who might be in a city and we're disconnected from, you know, our homelands, from our reserve community. Uh, But that doesn't mean that it's completely broken. You know, I was lucky enough to grow up, you know, actively working to strengthen that connection. Um, You know, I think the other thing that I think about is like how I was a girl, you know? So being a girl in a patriarchal world, you're not groomed for anything. And when you're not groomed for anything, you have to figure out early, you know, what is it that you can do that where you're not competing with the boys, right? And so politically, you, you know, for me that meant like really honing my critical thinking. You know, it brought me to uh, the Institute of Indigenous Governance, which used to be a post-secondary institution run out of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Yeah. And there, you know, as a you know as a young woman learning about the history of colonization. Learning about Paulo Ferrer and pedagogy of the oppressed and learning about, you know, decolonization and cop in the head and all of these really important indicators of being assimilated. And so, you know, really bringing that lens with me to, you know, how I grew up, you know, being a young woman being disconnected, you know, uh, from my homelands because, you know, I'm now in, now in a city and trying to figure out, well, what's important to me? Um, and, and I have to say, you know, like, here we are today, and a lot more people understand the history of colonization. You know, they're saying, you know, they want to decolonize everything, like it's, you know, a little sprinkle you can put on yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not an easy verb right? And so like, we have to continue to, you know, peel back the layers on what does it really mean? Um, And and for me, you know, I look at that in an urban context, in a city context, because it's still such a blank slate, you know, when it comes to our knowledge on Indigenous peoples in cities.
0: Oh, exactly. And the Indigenous peoples in cities are from such a multitude of backgrounds and experiences, we can't assume the same thing for everybody. So some people are homeless in the urban context. Some people are in and out of urban context in their community back in the city for work in the community back in the city. Others just gone and moved uh, there. There's like so many different experiences. You can't even say this is the one way you have to address urban indigenous issues in in cities or towns or, or major metro centers because of the variety of experiences. And that doesn't even take into account the vast number of traumas of people who have migrated or been forced to come to the city because of uh, land theft, not enough land on the reserve in their community or been had to be transported for things like health care and then left there to fend for themselves or kids who've run away from foster care. There's just like multiple overlapping degrees of trauma on many of the people. So you've got this wide variety that uh, I think, you know, for people to make the assumption that people who live in cities are less indigenous or have less of an indigenous experience i mean that is an indigenous experience yeah. in fact you know mm-hmm. all of these things and and so you know you're you're growing up you're you're doing your you know education and your work experience is it that profound sense of, like, this experience you had with the disconnectedness that really geared you towards, I need to focus on urban Indigenous peoples?
1: I think so. You know, and, and you know, you mentioned how, you know, like I was a youth advocate, you know, yeah. at one point. And, and, you know, I was a young person, you know, trying to push for um, our communities to recognize, like, that Half of our population are also young, you know, and, and what is there for our young people to do? And so, you know, that was, you know, I think my first foray into uh, political activism. And it brought me to uh, become the youth representative for B.C. for the Assembly of First Nations. Um, and, and then I later became the co-chair of the AFN uh, National Youth Council. Wow. And I met uh, our people from all across this country, like from coast to coast to coast. And it was such an amazing experience. And I just, I, I just love being um, in our gatherings and I love mm-hmm. hearing um, our people tell their stories. I love hearing about how people, you know, do their fish. You know, that's like the best thing that I like talking about with a new person <laughs> I haven't met before is like, well, how do you do your fish? You know, and then you trade little notes. Um, but, you know, uh <laughs> going back to being, you know, a a woman, you know, at this point, a young woman in a man's world, like, there were hardly any female chiefs, you know, at the AFN, um, or chiefs in general across this country. Um, And, you know, I felt like their focus was more on like economic development, you Mm. know, and less so on the things that are really needed to bring our people together you know, for understanding, you know, self-determination and sovereignty or for healing, you know, like there's so much healing that needs to happen. And that kind of really led me to uh, focusing on our people in cities because this was the gap, right? Like the chiefs are focused on economic development, you know, business, government relations, who's focusing on healing, where are our people at, how can we bring our people together And then, like, what is known about our people in an urban context? And it was like, this is such a gap, right? And so if I'm going to be useful in any means, I need to go where the gaps are, you know, and try and figure out, you know, what is going on, you know? And unfortunately, you know, at, at a political level, you know, chiefs and the AFN tend to say that they represent the voice of our urban peoples as well. And they don't. I don't think that they understand the context of what it's like mm. to have, you know, a downtown East Side yeah. in your city and break through to our people who, as you've said, have a lot of traumas that they carry with them. And have very to little know, you know, access to, you know, our culture, to healing, to our foods, to connectedness, to even wanting to go home at any point. Mm. Not only that we're not just a bundle of traumas. Like we come to cities because we seek opportunities too, right? For education and for work. And like, I have a lot of friends in the city and a lot of family in the city, right? Like, so I had this community here already, like nobody knew about it. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of the transition was really understanding, like, where are the gaps, you know, in our overall, you know, quest for self-determination, Mm-hmm. You know, and for bringing our collective together, for solidarity. Um, and, and, you know, you can't forget our people who are living in the cities. Like, there's, there's just too much going on here.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you had to identify a gap of the wide range of issues for Indigenous peoples, you literally picked the biggest gap. Because when you think about, at least for First Nations, 50% of us live off reserve in urban areas. And youth. Uh, can make up more than 50% of our communities. And then you think about where all, uh, where a large amount of the violence and exploitation is happening also in cities, also in urban areas. So you, you are literally trying to take on what an entire infrastructure, what an entire politics, what an entire country has really underserved. That's like a massive task. You must have found it really overwhelming at first.
1: Um, Well, yes and no. No, because cities, uh, for the most part, have like a high number of Indigenous service providers, Mm -hmm. right? So Indigenous housing providers, you know, here in Vancouver, we have a restorative justice centre, You know, we have an Aboriginal policing society, you know, we have uh, Culture Saves Lives, you know, we have Urban Native Youth Association, you know, like we have like a few dozen in Vancouver alone, you know, not to mention the service providers that are in North Vancouver, or in Surrey or New Westminster. And it's like this in cities all across this country. And so You know, I think cities are not a blank slate when it comes to indigenous peoples and issues because we already have, you know, this wealth of organizations who have decades of caring for our people, Mm -hmm. bringing our people together. It's just, you know, I what I found, uh, you know, really connecting with our leaders uh, in cities is that, you know, I think their language on how they described what it was that they were doing was probably more aligned with, you know, federal speak, (laughs) or Mm -hmm. provincial speak, you know, it didn't resonate with other city residents, it didn't resonate with the municipalities. And so, you know, when you're only focused on a couple of level of levels of government, and you're in a city, and you're forgetting the city, and you're forgetting the residents, like you become a bit of an ineffective advocate in that sense. And we're set up to fail that way, right? Like we're set up to focus our attention on the Department of Indian Affairs. Like that already puts us in a weakened state because we should be working with all levels of government, not just one. Like this whole master servant, you know, uh, hierarchy that we have, like it does not serve any of us well. And so that really translated to the city. And so, you know, trying to figure out like, where does the power lie? Yes. Yes. Who are the people and the stakeholders, you know, and and like, what does that look like? You know, everything needs to be a power map,
0: right? Like you got to put it all down (laughs) on paper,
1: power map that out. And then like you see, you know, what's going on.
0: Well, think about for how many years, and I don't have to tell you this, that urban Indigenous peoples were always the jurisdictional void where the federal government said they're off reserve, we're not responsible for them. And provinces said, wait a second there's some kind of native person. So that's uh, federal and municipalities weren't even in that conversation. And then when you think about, okay, services and supports and community and citizenship, it's like, well, you're either going to the feds or the provs. And there's like, but there's cities that are supposed to actually be providing services and creating community for everybody there, not just the non-indigenous ones. And so I think again, You've, you've identified this jurisdictional gap, but more than jurisdiction. It's like the sense of community happens at the local level, at the local grassroots level. It, a national approach is hardly going to be effective in every local grassroots level. I mean, how, how have you found, you know, you know, addressing that at the municipal local grassroots level compares to, say, at the federal level?
1: Hmm. Right. Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Friendship Centre movement. You know, they've been, you know, bringing our people together both locally and then provincially and then nationally for decades, uh, and they've been doing such important work. And that really is like the model for like a lot of my thinking on how impactful it is when you focus on the local level, you know, and, and who is at the local level with us. You know, it's the city, you know, and as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, uh, when it came to Indigenous peoples, you know, cities have taken a, this is not my jurisdiction approach, like forever. And if they did have a focus on Indigenous peoples, it was usually on employment and training, right? Like, how can we bring Mm -hmm. Indigenous people in and give them some training and then send them on their way? So, you know, it was never done uh, to any great effect, um, but local matters, um, and, and, uh, cities are our nearest level of government. Like if I want to, uh, go to city hall and, and, talk to an elected official, I can literally walk up the street, but trying to talk to somebody, you know, in the province or the feds, like you have to jump on a plane, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and you know, like, the, and then they're never going to see you again, but then <laughs> no. you, you know, at, at the local level, you form a relationship, right? Like you see <sighs> these people on a regular basis, and that type of relationship just wasn't facilitated between first nations and cities, you know, and so cities had all of these misconceptions about who we were. They didn't understand the notion of our territorial shared boundaries. You know, they didn't even know like whose lands they were on, you know, and, and they felt like, you know, that is a federal jurisdiction. Yeah. We're out of here. You're on your own. But as you mentioned, cities have a duty to provide supports to all of their residents including our people and if they're not providing those supports to our people that's a gap it's their responsibility to make sure that that relationship is intact and doesn't stay severed and this is just the racism that we deal with as indigenous peoples it's a "Eh, that's too bad but no That's not too bad. This is your responsibility. You're in government and you have a responsibility to govern us. Like my band office isn't governing me. (laughs) Indian affairs isn't governing me. Like I need help. And that's what the city is doing but you're not helping
0: me. So, you know, that's kind of how it starts. Well, I know you're working on some amazing things right now, but let's just take it back a little bit to when I first met you and you were working on something called the urban Aboriginal peoples study. And I don't know that Canada was even ready for what, you know, the kind of profound findings that were being there. How did you get involved with the urban Aboriginal people study and like, Do you see how it's really led the way in providing the kind of, you know, that evidence-based analysis that we needed to kind of push on the urban front? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I was one of those people who, you know, grew up saying, like, we've been researched to death. Like, we don't need another study about our people. Like, we've been researched to death and no Mm. more researchers. Um, And then, you know, as a youth advocate, I couldn't find any data or any useful research on Indigenous young people, you know. And so then I realized, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not that we've been researched to death. Maybe it's that we've been researched wrong Mm -hmm. and our lenses haven't been brought into that. And so, you know, that put me on, you know, the education path and the early career path of doing a lot of community-based research, um, you know, and, and I feel like that, you know, naturally l- led me to being in distant circles with the Environics Institute and Michael yeah. Adams, who is the president of, enviro- uh, of the uh, Environics uh, research group and in the Institute. Um, and they are really, you know, they're a funny group, right? Like they're the guys that will like call you up when you're eating dinner, you know, at five o'clock and ask <laughs> you, is there anybody who smokes in your household? you know, can you, can you take a five-minute poll? Uh, but then they started this non research wing where they take some of the profits that they've earned from their for-profit side and then they fundraise and they try to give voice to uh, to communities that are really misunderstood, hmm. right? And so our people are one of those communities that were incredibly misunderstood because, you know, as you're saying, like, 10 years ago, like, nobody was talking about us in cities. Like, At all. Um, And so, you know, the Urban Aboriginal People Study, you know, it was, you know, such a ground up uh, project. You know, I could talk about the methodology alone. (laughs) But what's important is that um, it was the first research study uh, that looked at urban Indigenous people's experiences, identities, because we have multiple identities, (laughs) Our aspirations, like, what is it that we want? Nobody has ever asked us what our aspirations were. They always just assumed it was, you know, not to be sad all the time and, you know, relating yeah. to trauma. Yeah. Uh, but also, like also our values, right? Because values, you know, for the work that Environics had done in the past showed that like that was a really great way to build bridges, with other people who might not understand where you're coming from. A lot of times we have a lot of shared values. Um, And, you know, at that point in, uh, you know, 2008, when when I started the project, um, nobody had been focusing on Indigenous peoples in cities. You know, the political landscape, you know, looked at us and said, eh, you know, like... (laughs) Our own people didn't even want to talk about us.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um,
1: So, you know, uh, we found, we asked 150 questions. We interviewed, you know, over uh, 2,500 Indigenous peoples living in 11 cities. Uh, We had to translate uh, our survey into Inuktitut so that we can reach the Inuit uh, urban population in Ottawa, you know, in, in Montreal, Um, And we found a lot of things like we found a lot of things like, you know, the urban population in cities is a permanent population. Like we don't ebb and flow, you know, like maybe some of us move home and then we move back again. But for the most part, you know, we move to a city and then we stay there. Yeah. You know, and so this means a lot for a policymaker or for a city to not view us as a, you know, transitional population. How do you treat a permanent population? And we see that where we see other cultural communities who have, you know, a Chinatown or a Japantown or a little India or a little Indi- uh, Italy, right? Like there's no yeah. urban indigenous. There's no indigenous anything in cities. Um, you know, out of those 150 questions, um, I think the one that I'm most proud of as well um, is that we asked a question on the importance of culture in one's life. And so we had to create a question that would determine how much cultural connection you had. And so we came up with family tree question. How well do you know your, uh, the place where your parents and grandparents came from, Mm -hmm. you know, how well do you know your parents and grandparents home community? And based on that question, We had assumed that if you knew your parents and grandparents' home community, you might know stories, you might know the foods, you might know some of the traditions, you might go home. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't know your home community, then you wouldn't have access to all of these cultural, you know, uh, impacts in your life. And we found that people who said that they knew their family tree well or very well, you know, they were more likely to say they were happy in their lives uh, they were more likely to vote. Mm-hmm. They were more likely to volunteer. They are more likely to say that they had job satisfaction and they could see themselves progressing in their workplace. You know, they were also, uh, you know, just more likely to have post-secondary education or be on the path. And then on the opposite spectrum, you know, if you didn't know your family tree very well, you didn't have all of these strong protective factors, right? Like, you were disconnected, you know? And so that was like the first time we were able to show in data the importance of culture because we've always said, you know, culture is important as air and water, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, but we were able to show in data that if you had a cultural connection to your home community, you were doing better in all of these other aspects in your life. And so that was a huge wake up call for me to really push for culture, You know, Mm -hmm. not politics, not economic development, (laughs) you know, culture, you know, it means something to us in a deep and important way. Um, You know, and, and so, you know, the Urban Aboriginal People Study, you know, is the first time that Canadians were able to view our people in a positive light because our values were very similar to everybody's values in that we want a good life for our children and our grandchildren. You know, we want our children to live a life free of racism and discrimination. You know, we want an education. You know, there are things that we aspired to, like home
0: ownership and going (laughs) on vacations. Can you imagine? It blew people's (laughs) minds. Oh my gosh. But it's just a deeply embedded racism and stereotypes and everything about us that it, you know, all we want is to just barely subsist. Please, just please let us barely have enough food to eat and then we'll be okay. And it's like, oh, we want a good life too, however we define it. I really appreciated that because at the time I was doing a lot of work on um, Indigenous people who live off reserve, people who are disconnected because of foster care residential schools or the Indian Act the discriminatory provisions of the Indian Act and all of the community-based research we were doing when we were asking people you know why is it so important for you to be connected everyone thought it was going to be oh I want you know money I want this I want and it was all cult, like all culture 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 I want to be connected I want to feel connected I want to belong I want to feel belonged you know like all of that, and it just was literally the opposite of what people assumed it would yeah. be. And then your study came along, and I was like, "See, yeah, That's what people have been saying forever, and that not just this mystical, new agey kind of sense of culture, you know, and how people say it's oh, it's good for you, but a real, it has real." impacts on us we're less likely to have all of these other problem areas and then after your study when they did that study on the uh, protective factors associated with suicide in first nations and it was like oh wait a second it's culture it's belonging it's whether you're involved in you know language revitalization in self-determination all of these things any of those First Nations had lower rates of suicide. And I was like, see, all of these things are coming together. It literally, that's how profound culture is to us.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, going back to, you know, the, the discriminatory attitudes, you know, one of the other aspects of the Urban Aboriginal People Study is that we also uh, conducted a compa- companion study on the attitudes of Canadians towards Indigenous peoples. And so, uh, you know, we asked her a number of questions because we wanted comparisons, right? You know, like uh, how much of an impact do you feel you can have in your city, right? Mm-hmm. We asked it to Indigenous peoples. And then we found that, you know, when we asked that question to non-Indigenous people, just Canadians, Indigenous peoples, you know, in some cities felt like they could make more of a positive impact in their cities wow. than non-Indigenous peoples. You know, and so we needed to have some of these comparative questions, but what I really enjoyed is the piece where we did a segmentation analysis on the four different types of Canadians in regards to their attitudes on Indigenous peoples. And this is what people come back and talk to me about all the time because, you know, they might have heard me present on the study and they might have seen themselves reflected in those four attitudes, or maybe their parents or their grandparents reflected in those four attitudes. And so, you know, I would say that, you know, um, so I'll I'll run them down. Uh, The first and most negative group we called the dismissive naysayers. (laughs) You know, this was almost, you know, maybe 20% of the population. Uh, Dismissive naysayer, Uh, not only believes the negative stereotypes about Indigenous peoples, but they actively reinforce those stereotypes. They try to put their, uh, uh, their negative attitudes, their stereotypes onto others and and, and hopes to see that grow. Uh, They don't believe that we have Indigenous rights. They believe that, you know, we do everything to ourselves and that we're at fault. Um, You know, they, they, basically see us in a completely negative light. Uh, These people also tend to be older. Um, The second group, they're also negative. You know, these are called, we call them the inattentive skeptics. And inattentive skeptics, you know, uh, they believed that, um, you know, I have a hard life. We all have a hard life. You need to just get over it, you know they don't learn about us in any real capacity except for what they see in the news. And at that time, you know, what you heard about in the news was all negative, right? It was all negative. There were no success stories about our people in the media at that point, let alone indigenous journalism's in the mainstream. Uh, and so inattentive skeptics, you know, they're around like maybe 11 or 12% of the population. um, you know, the next group, this is like 45%. We call them the cultural romantics. <laughs> you know, so they think about, you know, dancing, singing, regalia, they think about art, you know, they 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 don't know anything about our people though. They don't know about residential schools or the history of colonization. They don't have indigenous friends, they don't know who their indigenous co-workers are. You know, and, and frankly, like they weren't taking any steps to really know us either. And so anytime that they tried to help, they would still embed this, you know, like utopian, you know, mystical Indian trope, you know, into what it is, what it, it was uh, ever they were doing. Um, And and that led that, you know, the charity sector, you know, charitable Mm. sector, you think about these people, right? Like, it's a very paternalistic attitude still. And then the fourth, uh, connected advocates, you know, connected advocates, you know, they have Indigenous friends, you know, they're allies, they know who their Indigenous co-workers are, not only do they believe in the racism and discrimination, they've seen it firsthand. Like they see it and they believe it. And that changes who they are because then they know, they know that we're telling the truth. And back then, you know, remember, like not that long ago, like nobody, nobody believed what we had to say. We had to hold national inquiries <laughs> for people yeah. to finally believe that our children died in residential schools. You know, like, they put so many of our people through, like, tribunals to try and figure out, like, the degree of harm that you experienced in a residential school. Then they had to judge them, right, Mm -hmm. in order to compensate them. Like, it was such a messed up world. Not that long ago. It's still pretty messed up now. But, man, like, the four (laughs) types of Canadians, like, just stays with me all
0: the time because, like, you see them when you meet them. Like, who are you? You could use that frame on Twitter and say all of the people commenting on indigenous issues. And it's like, wow, look at these deniers and haters. And, you know, then these these inattentive people, and then the people still doing the mystical, you know, your culture healed me, but what residential school. (laughs) And then people who actually just make an effort and and no one's ever asking for perfection. What we're saying is assume the responsibility of self-educating who the vast majority of Canadians have access to the internet, to libraries, they have quality education. There's no reason not to know, but you kind of have to be intentional about it. I think to be willfully blind, you would actually have to be intentional about, oh, I see something Indigenous and actually not care to read about it, because how could you escape it nowadays? But yeah, that's that kind of groundbreaking work and, and, you know, frame and lens that you have, you must've found that really useful. So you've got this like urban context, you've got the actual data, community-based research, and then comes along to city of reconciliation, Mm -hmm. you know, and how did that come about? Because I know that you were instrumental in that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Having the environics U apps under my belt, it helped tremendously. I also have a public policy background, right? Mm-hmm. like you know it goes back to me as a young woman, like just trying to figure out like how can I be helpful and how can I you know get an education and skills that um, you know that could help um, and so you know when you have a public policy background and you understand a policy process, Like, you're able to see, like, every little step along the way to a solution. And that is exactly what the city of Vancouver needed, you know, when I came on. Um, So it was 2013, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission were holding their national events across the country, Uh, Reconciliation Canada, led by Chief Dr. Robert Joseph, wanted to host a Walk for Reconciliation. You know, the city reached out to me and asked me to come on really to help, you know, organize, you know, the TRC national event in Vancouver and help organize the Walk for Reconciliation. Uh, But when I met with their staff on, you know, well, what is it that you hope to do in the areas of reconciliation? Like, I realized and our staff realized like I needed there as well. And so you know, I ended up becoming you know, a staff support person <laughs> in a lot of respects, you know, like I remember our first uh, inter uh, departmental staff meeting where I brought staff from all of the departments, like from engineering and from the libraries and from cultures and services and planning, police and fire, you know, like, you know, business and licensing, like, you name it, like, what is it that you hope to achieve in regards to reconciliation? And have there any been, have there ever been projects that you wanted to work on with Indigenous communities, but you weren't able to get it off the ground, because, well, in a city, like most places, you need political will, in order to give staff permission to do something. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of how, you know, the ball started getting rolling. In understanding what is it that we can do, you know, so we started implementing some of the projects that staff wanted to work on, Um, you know, the uh, mayor and council at the time, you know, wanted to declare a year of reconciliation, because they were so committed and swept up and understanding, well, what can we do as a city? They had heard my UAP's presentation. They felt challenged to do something. They weren't buying the it's not my jurisdiction to act rhetoric that most cities had fallen under. And so we held a year of reconciliation. Like what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? And is this going to work? And is it going to make sense? Um and, you know, within that year, we had gone from, you know, maybe a couple of programs or services or policies or initiatives to 25 in the course of a year. You know, so every department, you know, we didn't have a Department of Indian Affairs in the city. You know, every department was challenged to come up with, you know, some sort of systems change or program or initiative. Um, that year, you know, Mayor and Council were also wondering about endorsing UNTRIP. You know, what does UNDRIP mean? You know, and how can we, you know, start bringing that lens into what it was that we were doing? And I remember telling them, you know, we can't be serious about endorsing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples if Vancouver doesn't recognize the simple truth that we are not Vancouver land. This is not Vancouver's land. This is unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh lands. We are on unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh lands. That has to be the basis of uh, adopting UNDRIP, you know, and and that has to be the lens to which we move forward. And so despite the uh, guidance of the in-house lawyers at the time who thought it was risky to recognize that, you know, the city was on unceded lands, mayor and council took that tremendous step. And that really changed everything. Once that truth was embedded in the city, we went from like, you know, like 25, you know, programs and policy changes, like in the course of a few years to like a hundred. And in that time, you know, we had developed uh, a city of reconciliation framework, because when you look at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, report, you know, in their preamble, they talk about why frameworks matter and they have a reconciliation framework within the TRC. It's not just about the 94 calls to actions that need to be implemented. They have a framework for how this needs to be done. And so we created our own framework that really helped and challenged how the city needed to move towards recognizing that all of the work we were doing was on unceded lands. And so, you know, the city developed a government-to-government relationship with Mm -hmm. local First Nations. So it was chief and council with mayor and council meeting, you know, and then we had staff-to-staff meetings. You know, um, you know, one of the pillars of the City of Reconciliation Framework, um, you know, we called effective decision-making. And this was essentially how we were able to cut red tape because, you know, I did, you know, not all staff were totally on board, you know, some staff would come to me and they'd say, oh, we can't do that, Ginger, we have this policy in place that means that we can't, you know, we, we can't recognize this thing that you want us to do, you know, red tape. And so, um, you know, the City of Reconciliation Framework took precedence over everything. And so I, you know, I was able to go to them and say, well, actually, you have to do it. You have to change this thing that you've been working on for 30 years. Because it's actually harmful to our advancement of unceded territory uh, and and our recognition of reconciliation in this land. And so, I mean, that was the other big learning is that you have to be able to cut out a lot of that BS and have it be an internal policy mechanism in order for any of the things that need to happen to have it happen. It was not easy work by any means. No. Um, and there's still a lot of learnings to ha- uh, to happen. But just remember that this is a jurisdiction, a government jurisdiction that just a few years ago really had a hands off approach. Like they didn't know whose territories they were on. You know, they had like. <laughs> No Indigenous staff, you know, they had some Indigenous staff here and there, and like things, you know, didn't go as far as they could. And so, you know, reconciliation in the city of Vancouver and all the work I was able to lead was transformational because Vancouver is a much different place today than it was back in 2013. Like, it's
0: phenomenal. And what an example it is to other areas. Like, If I look at, say, the province of New Brunswick, that's where I'm from, and, you know, they've got their Justice New Brunswick lawyers telling the government people, don't acknowledge these are unceded lands. You know, they might win a court case on Aboriginal title. And we're, you know, the First Nations are like, what? We've been saying it for years. How are you... Now you're going to roll back the clock. And yeah. so now you're gripped in litigation. It's adversarial relationships when all they need to do is look at these examples and say, wow, did did Vancouver fall apart because they recognized it was unceded territory? Did they fall apart because they now work government to government? In fact, no, things are better. There's always improvements and hiccups and stuff. But wow, I mean, even the problems in New Brunswick could look and say, oh, Nothing terrible happened to them. I mean, it's such a good example, a shining light of at least here's how you start. It's never the end. We're in an ongoing relationship. Yeah. And so I just think it's it's phenomenal. And I know we're we're about to wrap up, and there's something I wanted to talk to you about because it's what you're what you're currently doing, which is really exciting. And we were talking about this as your title, because you at you know, SFU, you're doing urban indigenous policy planning and decolonization. And I have never heard a title like that before, but it sounds innovative to say the least. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, really simply all of our cities in North America and Canada, you know, they're, they're quite new. They're all designed with this Eurocentric ident- identity. There's no Indigenous presence at all in the design, in the names, in how things are, are, are uh, decided upon. And it doesn't need to be this way, you know? So when you look at what is happening in New Zealand, you know, especially the city of Auckland, and all of the work that the Maori peoples have done to really elevate their presence. You know, Maori culture in New Zealand is front and center in a way that our cities could really look to and model themselves after. Because New Zealand has come such a long way in terms of, you know, their rights recognition, their language recognition, incorporating uh, Maori education and learnings into uh, into the educational system. And their cities are starting to reflect their culture and identity. And I talk about this in my TED talk a little bit too, about like, What could our future look like? You know, our future can look like what the Maori in New Zealand uh, have been working towards because they are on their own reconciliation journey as well. And now New Zealanders know Maori language. You know, when you listen to, uh, you know, non-Maori, like, you know, white urban planners in New Zealand, they're saying a lot of Maori words, right? Words that describe the relationship to the land, words that describe the type of values that they're trying to build into city building, you know. And so, you know, I was talking to a Maori architect and he was saying, you know, one of the unspoken goals is for all New Zealanders to have a sense of Maori pride. Wow. They want all of them to understand whose lands they are on yes. and how you can incorporate their traditional knowledge for the benefit of everybody. And you can do that in cities. Cities are a great place to do this because cities are a representation of the power of our civilization. And right now, cities reflect a Eurocentric identity. If they reflected Indigenous knowledge and brought Indigenous design, everybody would know where they were. There'd be no denying that everybody would understand Indigenous stewardship practices because, hello, we're in a climate emergency, right? They could bring that level of knowledge into choosing how, you know, cities are designed and reflected. Right now, you know, we have a long way to go, but my fellowship is really focusing on unlocking the power of indigenizing our cities and not in a tokenistic way either. Yeah. There's actually some strong method- methodological you know, processes that you need to bring in to do this right, you know, and it's deep and it requires a lot of community engagement. And this is what's really important to me is that we can't have a top-down decision-making process for any of the things that we do. We need to involve community in it because if we're going to be daylighting Indigenous knowledge for, you know, our waterfront parks redevelopment, Well, you know, First Nations people here need to relearn that history, too. They need to relearn those place names. We've lost so much because of the impacts of residential schools. We have to relearn our language and our practices. And so we can't just let urban planners learn these things. How can we create a process where, you know, all of the impacted peoples are able to benefit from this and learn together. And so all of the things that I do, I call it a co-learning process because, you know, non-Native people are learning about the history of these lands, but then host nation members are also learning about the history of these lands. It has to go back and forth, right? We want the next generation to be better. We don't just want our cities to look different and look pretty. We want the people to actually like know it in their hearts and to be able to say it in the the traditional languages of these lands. And that's where we need to move to. Most of us live in cities, not just Indigenous peoples, but most peoples live in cities today. And so if we can influence that, you know, we influence a lot of decision makers, a lot of businesses, you know, a lot of, you know, travelers who come here. Um, right now it's just such a blank slate and there's so much work to do, but I want to see more people, uh, looking at this as an opportunity. If they're working with you,
0: they've taken a really important step because, you know, think of all your youth work that brought you into your education and adulthood and your profession. I mean, you have just had such a strong focus on, you know, yes, urban indigenous issues, but ultimately how it benefits cities and towns and urban areas for everybody else how it benefits these municipalities and like these two things really go together and it's like literally a shining example of of how we should be working and I am so thankful that you are working on this and all of the groundbreaking work that you've done because there are not enough gingers <laughs> in this world doing that. I mean, effectively, there's a lot that we're working on and it can be very overwhelming sometimes, but I'm, I'm thankful that there are also people out there working on urban indigenous issues. And it's just such a fundamental part of your life. It's like you are you live it, you work it, you research it, you you help like everything. And so, Ginger, thank you so much for coming on this show and giving people just a tiny glimpse, because I know you and I could have had a five-hour conversation about <laughs> this, but for giving people a tiny glimpse of what is possible and how it's good and that there's so many opportunities left there. Like you said, a blank slate. Let's go rewrite it in a good way that really gives power to the word reconciliation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for our young people, especially, right? Let's not just focus on, you know, Indian affairs. Yeah. You know, there's this big wide world out there, and we belong all over our lands, and we deserve to be seen. And heard and
0: felt and smelt, and all of these things. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you know, it's, speaking to the youth is so important because that's where you were. And out of your work as a youth and your visions and hopes became look at the work you're doing for the city and imagine how many other youth, if just, you know, supported and and valued. And, you know, it's not just the elected politicians sitting around a table making decisions that at the local grassroots, level, including youth, we can make such a powerful change. So thank you. I mean, my goodness, Ginger, I can only imagine. I mean, you're already so young. What you will be doing in the rest of your life that's going to benefit everybody, this entire country. And don't forget Thank you also to the listeners and viewers who take the time to self-educate, listen to other voices, lift up those voices, share it widely. And don't forget, listen to Ginger's TED Talk, Canadian Shame. And I will post the links to all of this stuff in the podcast description and the YouTube description so you can access it easily. Um, And don't forget to support Indigenous creators of all kinds, artists, you know, mom and pop shops, pizza shops, clothing makers, beaters, people doing podcasts and YouTubes and TikToks and, you know, everywhere. Because the more we can support Indigenous peoples doing what they love and contributing to their culture, the better it's going to be for all of us. So don't forget to do that. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia.